Are you a staffing executive? Do you want to grow your business faster? Check out Staffing Hub Live. It's a new exclusive event designed for staffing execs who want to skip the line and ride business class as they speed towards their growth goals. At Staffing Hub Live, you'll learn how to select the right tech stack to beat your competitors. You'll hear from industry leaders who've grown firms from nothing to over $500 million in sales in just a few years. And you'll get tips from executives who have scaled through acquisition. Visit staffinghub.com slash live to learn more about this exclusive event. Hello, and welcome to The Staffing Show, the only podcast that delivers tools, tips, and tactics from the staffing and recruiting industry's top executives and thought leaders. In this episode, David Falwell, the president of Staffing Hub, interviews Mahfouz Ahmed, CEO and principal founder of Dysis. Well, first of all, uh, Mahfouz, super excited to have you on the, the, the podcast today. Uh, I've heard a lot about your business and very excited about to learn about how you've grown your business and hear uh, about how you've kind of come up in the staffing industry. And uh, I'm just excited to have you on the, uh, on the podcast today. You know, excited to be here. Look, I mean, uh, it's it's been an interesting journey, and uh, as far as I am concerned, uh, we're we're only about a, a third into where we want to go. So, so a lot more to uh, lot lot more to write about, and and hopefully all good. That's going to be coming next. Yeah, and 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 from what I can see, it looks like you you've grown Dices from the ground up. Literally started it. From day one, and have and have built it to now. What looks like it's it's over a five hundred million dollar firm. Uh, so how, how do you tell, tell us a little bit about you know your story and and how you uh, how you started the business, why you started it, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So uh, yeah, the the story truly is that uh, it it was me and my one of my friends who uh, we went to college George Mason together. When we graduated, we like most people, we thought we could do things better, and we started this business in his basement. And for two years, really, not much really happened besides us wasting weekends and coming up with great plans. Uh, our, uh, <laughs> revenue at the end of the second year, I believe was like, uh, $6,000 or something like that, mainly hardware sales. And my wife and his wife, we both, they both gave us ultimatum saying, look, uh, it's, it's wonderful that you guys have great ideas, but, uh, we would like our weekends back. So either do something about it or let's call this, uh, a good attempt. And, uh, as luck would have it, we landed our uh, first major deal a month after that. So uh, my background is in electrical engineering with a minor in computer science. And I actually came here uh, to study. So I was on an F1 student visa, um, graduated in 1993. Job market was a little iffy at that time. And I needed a sponsorship to stay in the country, the H1B visa sponsorship. So um, when I applied, um, I got a few job offers, but the one that I liked the most was where my brother was working, which was at Mobile Oil Corporation. And I joined there, uh, not as an engineer, but a, a quality assurance, software quality assurance engineer. Uh, and uh, again, in, in my case at that time, I needed a job. And as long as it was in line with what what I could do, I would take anything. <laughs> So once I got into Mobile Oil Corporation, um, what I saw there was in, in that quality assurance group, uh, they used to have uh, their proprietary software that they would um, you know, have a couple of releases a year. 
I was in the group that would test the software to make sure that everything was working okay, that nothing would break. It was a really boring job. So what I did was I found a software that would um, capture your keystrokes. So uh, I did my entire test strip on on uh, on uh, this computer and recorded all the keystrokes. And then I played it back and I added some because, again, I had my engineering background and programming background. I added some uh, additional code in there where I could run this software on that machine and what would take about two hours to complete in testing, it would do it in about five minutes. Uh, and I had to do nothing. I just had to look at the screen. It was beautiful. And if it broke, then we could restart it and we knew there was a problem. So um, my philosophy always uh, has been uh, from day one that, uh, you know, there are things that we can automate and accelerate and make things better and use our time more efficiently. Uh, although that, that that little gig that I did, it made my uh, uh, my developer team very happy because now they had more time to actually do coding rather than wait for us to test. It made my then boss, uh, who was over Q&A, very unhappy because they, he ended up letting go half the team because we didn't need that many people anymore. <laughs> So, you, so you, you, you automated the jobs away. Uh, I automated the jobs away. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, this is a philosophy that I hold uh, to, to this day that I wasn't afraid that my job was going to go away because I said, well, look, look what I did. It's, it's fantastic. It saved people money and time. Uh, I'm sure somebody would notice it. And in a good company like Mobile Oil Corporation, somebody did. So I got promoted into the infrastructure support group, which was predominantly working with moving uh, computers from mainframe to the mid-range servers, like the HP servers and the Sun Solaris servers. So, um, again, just like, you know, it, it's kind of funny that every generation there's new technology comes in and it becomes a big buzz and everybody's on it. And if you just spell it, uh, you know, you're going to get a gazillion dollars, but nobody really knows how, it, how to work it. So the, that transition was the same way that everybody wanted to move to mid-range, but they didn't know how to do it. So I worked with some of the HP engineers and, and figured out, how to make the systems, these mid-range systems, more robust. Because uh, one of the problems that people did not understand is that mainframes never went down. But when you have these things that were mid-range servers that were sitting in your server room, they did go down. They had disk failures, they had uh, CPU failures, all kind of bad things happened to them. You could have flooding. So you needed to build a fault-tolerant system that would be a lot more robust than a normal machine would be. And I learned how to do that and, and, and we're able to pull that off. And that's really what launched the company because uh, in the IT side, um, in general, in middle management, uh, there's pretty high velocity. The managers uh, probably stay in a company for a couple of years uh, and then move to a different company chasing some newer, cooler project. So as these managers move from one company to another, they called me personally and said, hey, Mafuz, what you did over there, can you do over here? And I said, sure, I can do it. And uh, it really started by, I mean, almost like moonlighting because we didn't have any employees. So I would do my nine to five. And then after hours, I, me and my partner, we would go to these places and, and fix stuff for them. Uh, and and from that, it kind of evolved in, hey, you guys did such a great job in, in this particular uh, technology 
can you find me a guy who can do Lotus Notes? Uh, you know, we're really struggling over there. And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll find them. You know, we're technology people. We can screen people well. Got a, a, a subscription on a job board and pulled out a few resumes and and uh, found a candidate. And, and voila, <laughs> it started. That we started having more employees now uh, working for us. And we we did it like that on, on the side till about year 2000. So about six years, um, the company was a, um, a side project. And in 2000, we finally got to about 5 million in size. We won a pretty sizable contract with the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we decided that this was time to take it, um, take it to the next level. I quit my job, which was a pretty a high paying job at that time doing uh, all kind of um, network infrastructure management uh, work and came into this full time and decided that I will take it to the next level. The project that we won was Commonwealth of Virginia's uh, overall networking contract. It was worth about 200 million over five year time frame. And uh, it, it had hardware and it had software and the incumbent was Verizon. So uh, the Commonwealth uh, wanted a smaller company and a local company to take this over. And everybody was kind of floored because think about, uh, about it. We were a $5 million revenue company that won a $200 million contract. So everybody was like, there's no way these guys can perform on this. How's that going to work? Yeah. So there were protests. The Commonwealth sent a team to come and verify our work. We took them to all our major clients. They got glowing reviews. Long story short, we got the award. Uh, the excitement didn't last too long, though, because um, my then partner uh, decided all of a sudden that he didn't want to be part of a bigger company. And uh, he took the original, pe- most of the original people that I had, and he split off to his own group. And I said, that's fine. You know, we'll, I'll manage this big contract. You know, no harm, no foul. But then the dot-com bubble burst. And a year later, 9-11 happened. So this $200 million oh, wow. contract ended up being $80 million. Most of us uh, of that uh, ended up being hardware, which you know, I didn't really do much with. So I started focusing back on what I knew how to do best, which was uh, technology solutions, whether that's providing staff augmentation or services to our clients. Uh, and, and I started with the clients that, again, had done business with me before. And... It it grew. Uh, we the the reason that we were able to grow it that fast is that you know we we attracted the top sales talent. I was paying above market. My value proposition was very simple. The reason people join me is because if you work for Dices, whatever number you were making, I would give you ten percent more if you produce the same results. And the reason that the clients bought for me is that I was the lowest price provider. So the value proposition really wasn't there. And I didn't make any qualms about it either. Uh, We did make sure that any job we took, we were able to complete it on time, uh, under budget, and our clients gave us reference. So our expansion really happened through word of mouth. Managers moving from one company to another is how they took us from, uh, from one place to another. So uh, from 2000 to 2005, we were predominantly a DC metro-based company. And then uh, some of our larger clients like ExxonMobil decided to consolidate their vendor list. So they had about 200 plus um, suppliers for IT staffing and IT services, and they just found that to be too large a number. 
So they came back and they said, look, we need national suppliers and we're going to cut this down from 200 something initially to 80, then to 30. And our final number is going to be seven. So obviously everybody freaked out, including myself, open offices <laughs> in, in multiple locations, Dallas, Houston, California. And, and, and mind you, I had no idea how to expand. So it was really me landing in Houston and trying to figure out, okay, where do I even open an office? Uh, sitting in into the hotel lobby and uh, calling up people who would uh, come and interview with me to to start the uh, start the branch offices there. So uh, those were those were definitely really interesting times. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, that really helped us is uh, the kind of people we um, we attracted uh, at that time, for lack of a better word, were high performing mercenaries. They knew what they had to do. They could bring accounts with them. They didn't want people to tell them what to do. As long as the numbers were there, you left them alone and they were fine. So it attracted, it actually worked and it attracted a lot of high performers who came and started joining our company. So from 2000 to 2012, we went from, uh, again, because my partner had left, almost zero revenue to 250 million in revenue in a straight line. So um, wow. almost compound annual growth rate was close to 38%. And this included your 2008 uh, meltdown. Uh, we are one of the only uh, IT services companies that actually grew double digit during that period rather than shrinking. That, that's incredible. So, and and, and it, oh, go ahead. So I was going to take a break and, uh, and see if you had any questions that I was going to give you yeah, some I, I, uh, background I, on our client selection and, and why some of these things happened. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a series of questions. I, that, that's a pretty incredible story. And uh, as you're talking about that, the first thing that uh, one thing that we like to do on this podcast is, is help, you know, staffing firms that are trying to grow their business really identify key takeaways and uh, tactics that they can use to grow their business. And yeah, I mean, you talked about having this be a six-year side project, um, you know, before you got to five million dollars. And um, what what do you think uh, during that six years? Were there any um, you know specific moments or learnings that you, you know, lessons that you learned that really helped you kind of break free from the side project to having this be a full-time business, uh, or was it just kind yeah. of the, you know a, a constant grind? Yeah, so 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 think about this. Um, I was an immigrant in a country. I I had my H one B visa. I was getting my permanent residency, and I I had just married. I had a very young family. Right. Uh, my ability to take big risk was not really high. I didn't have a bank loan. Nothing. Right. So so what yep. I needed to do was ensure that if I'm trying to grow this business, that I still had some level of income on the side. I could not. I could not rely on the uh, choppy nature of the business that was coming in from Dices at that time. So the you know, first advice is that you, you, know, you need to have a backup plan that keeps you whole. Because the reason the business grew, even as a side project, is we did not take a dollar's worth of profit from that company into our own coffers. We reinvested 100%. And that's how it grew. You need funds to, to grow. Whether you borrow it from a bank or from a relative or you do it organic through just taking the money from the company and reinvesting, you need money to grow. So if you don't have that and if you don't have that plan, uh, the chances are you're going to run out of cash 
and you're going to be very, very frustrated. And uh, the second thing that I, I kind of I mentioned at the onset is that it wasn't easy. The first two years, we got nothing, $6,000 in revenue, right? So patience yeah, yeah. truly is a virtue here. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like patience and a lot of grit. It sounds like uh, the, the, the hard work and willingness to put in the time, uh, knowing that you need that just to, uh, to keep the cash flow if you're not going to take on the uh, extra risk or take on uh, institutional funding of some sort. Um, so that's no, fantastic. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And I'll give you a funny uh, story that I, I had in 1994, I had gotten married. And initially for almost like the first uh, six months, uh, I mainly saw my wife sleeping. And it's because... I used to go to work um, at six o'clock in the morning, so I had to wake up at five. And because I was moonlighting uh, in, in, on projects, uh, I would come home at like one o'clock in the morning. So oh, wow. I'd come, come in, <laughs> she'd be sleeping. I'd go out, she'd be sleeping. <laughs> so yeah, grit is, grit is required. This has to be your number one priority. If it's not, then it will not work. I, I completely uh, abide by that rule, and uh, I've uh, felt it myself over the last few years. Uh, that's that's a, a fantastic story. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned here, I thought was pretty interesting, and and would love to learn more about is. Uh, so you said that you paid uh, as as you kind of broke out and had you know the, the uh, sounds like the early two thousands. Um, you were paying the talent ten percent more than the competition, ten percent more than what they were making, but also uh, charging the, the clients less. How did you manage to pull that off? Yeah, so so we knew what we wanted to do, which was scale up fast, right? So uh, again, it's it's all about a business strategy on what what you want to be and how you want to be it. When we are uh, when we were small, nobody knew Dices. So me trying to sell a story about uh, how Dices staff augmentation or services IT services is better than anybody else. Uh, we tried it a few times uh, in front of the mirror and I didn't believe it. So I said, okay, what is it that is a true blue compelling reason for someone to join me? And the short answer was money. So I could give them money. And at that time in the industry, you could generally get about a 30% gross profit margin. So what I decided was that I was going to take half that margin. So I was going to give 10% of the 30 to the consultant. So they would come and work for me. And I would give 5% break to the client. So the client is getting the same resource at a cheaper price. It's a win-win situation. I didn't have to give any value proposition. They just came. That, that, that's fantastic. And, and, and smart. So it sounds like you have the, the strategy laid out. Um, one other question is just, you, you talked about, and I, I'm just curious if uh, uh, you were talking about building the, uh, I guess, fault uh, tolerance uh, at your, you know, having the engineering background. Have you used that or implemented that into the systems that you built at Dices? I have. So, uh, so now, fortunately, you know, we are we're about four hundred and twenty million dollars in revenue. I have an entire IT team that does it, and uh, you know, technology has come so far ahead. But what I took from uh, my learnings as in, in uh, as an engineer is we are extremely data driven. So I have data uh, for our company starting from. 2000. And what we do is we build models to see uh, what, what kind of models succeed, what kind of markets these models work. So it's not exactly one for one, but, but the, the, the point is that, you know, 
you have to really analyze a situation and try to build a system that can sustain the hits. And the, that lesson from computers, you can apply to your business and your, your human management philosophies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, um, so switching gears a little bit, but how, how are you, um, I guess, looking at what's coming next in the staffing uh, industry, anticipating the change and making sure that you're ahead of the curve? Sure. It's consolidation. Look, I mean, if you see any other industry, there is none where you have this level of fragmentation. Uh, I think the top guys in our industry only own like 8%. And if you go down mm-hmm. top 50 even, uh, doesn't own more than 60% of the market. There is no other industry like that. Uh, if you look at the airline industry, you really have four majors and few minors in there. If you look at the healthcare pairs, again, same thing, four or five majors. So that's exactly what is going to happen to this marketplace. Right now, the barrier to entry used to be very, very low. And now for, for any of the major accounts, it's high. They're, they have an RFP that go out. It's a bit out uh, on a three-year basis plus two one-year extensions. So if you're not in that list for the next five years, you're probably not getting in. So there is going to be consolidation. You're seeing it already. We're already ahead of the curve. 2012, we brought in a private equity group called Western Presidio. We took the money to build a platform, which was very, very painful because we had to change our entire system, uh, you know, shed low margin clients, which I actually had built the organization around making sure that we put a lot of compliance and risk mitigation uh, uh, methodologies in place. And then finally, um, you know, it, you know, I, I thought that we could do it in two years. It actually took us almost four years. So finally, when it got done, now we have purchased three companies in the last three years, and uh, integration has been seamless. Uh, we intend to do one or two mergers every year and and get to a size. Now, the secondary part is that the industry is also moving into a place where uh, you know, a value add becomes uh, a necessity. So we we are positioning ourselves as a talent gap solution company. So our clients call us because they have a talent gap. It might be that they want a, a singular body to come and sit, pure staff augmentation in their office and help with somebody. They can also tell us that, look, we don't have space in our office. We want it off-site or we want it offshore. We'll just give you the outcome. This is the outcome we're trying to get. We don't have the talent who can develop uh, the program to get this outcome. Can you do it? We will do that too. And last but not the least, where we have really invested a lot of money, uh, and I'm actually going to be a a panelist and a staffing industry analyst uh, uh, forum in September, is automation. We are looking at the repetitive work that people normally do, and we are infusing either machine learning or robotic process automation for those units to cut down on the number of people that you need. Uh, again, this goes back to my roots of how I even started. So, Absolutely. Uh, we are really focused on one, consolidation. Let's, let's roll up the other companies who have not made these investments. We have made millions of dollars of investment in uh, ensuring that we have a system that can um, handle high volume requirement flow. We have uh, spent the last nine years 
building a managed services group where if you want outcome-based systems, we can, we can actually do that rather than just providing you bodies. We have invested money into, uh, again, machine learning and robotic process automation so that the mundane work, you don't have to pay people to do it. We will give you the robots that will do it, will do it faster, better, and without errors. This episode of The Staffing Show is brought to you by Staffing Referrals the only recruiter referral platform designed specifically for staffing firms. If you're like most staffing firms, you're probably not using a digital referral platform, which means you're missing up to 60% of your potential referral placements. That's where Staffing Referrals comes in. Their recruiter referral platform helps you capture more referrals by transforming your candidates and contractors into digital brand ambassadors. Why do staffing firms love staffing referrals? You'll instantly get a referral program, like the ones used by Lyft, Uber, and Airbnb. Your recruiters get their very own brand ambassador program, and your company will get more referral leads than ever before. I think you should check it out. If you'd like to get more referral leads for your recruiters, check out their 90-day pilot. They're giving Staffing Show listeners $500 off their first 90 days. To claim your $500 discount, visit staffingreferrals.com forward slash hub. I think you'll love it. I'm a little bit of a tech nerd myself. I get excited about all of the, the machine learning, AI, you know, what's, what's next on the technology front. Um, are you able to share any of like specific examples of where you're success, successfully using machine, machine learning? Anything that's uh, uh, open, uh, not a differentiator? <laughs> Sure. Obviously, I can't use the names of the clients, but uh, we were working with a banking client in anti-money laundering. And we initially placed about 30 people on that group. And our goal was to go in there and reduce that number, which we did. Uh, wasn't a great success because, uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> there's a little bit of a people inertia that you have to uh, get over. But we were able to uh, Im- implement RPA in there to uh, to ensure that the number of people that was needed and this and uh, the the timeline that they wanted to do that we were able to beat it. I'll give you another example, which is probably a better one. Uh, in one of the major healthcare pairs, they give uh, they send out these tokens, uh, uh, you know, the security tokens uh, that that keep on changing their numbers, and you have to oh, enter yeah. it in. So these tokens, when their life runs out, they go back to get uh, reassigned. And there were a group of 30 people, or sorry, no, not 30, 35 people who were doing that work uh, out of Denver. And by the time we, we introduced RPA, Automation Anywhere is what we used. By the time we were done, we could do the exact same work with five people. Oh, that's fantastic. So, and so it actually yeah, it sounds so, like you're even you're even going as far as uh, in terms of outcome based placing people, but then reducing the number of people that you place if it's best for the client. So you're actually even taking it a step further and saying, all right, well, here's here's how we're going to start, but we're going to try to automate this and reduce your costs over time through machine learning and through automation, uh, which is which is really fantastic. Is that is that absolutely. accurate? Absolutely. And even self cannibalization. Look, we we cannibalize our own projects and make them smaller, right? But but here's the thing that uh, you know I held this uh, true from the day I started working. If you do a great job, your and your client base is a good client base. Ours is all Fortune 500. They recognize good suppliers, and yes, 
you know, in the short term, your $5 million project just became a $3 million project. But I can guarantee you they're going to give you another $10 million project because they've seen how good a work you have done. So the whole strategy, you know, rewinding, David, all the way back to the start, the reason that I, I initially positioned the company as a low-cost company is because I needed name recognition. I needed the size. So if you don't have the size, you can have a great product, but if you don't have a ready-made market for it, that product can, can get lost. And you have seen many of that stuff happening. So what I wanted to do is build a great client base, build the size. And once we did it in 2012, and we were over a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue, that's when I decided, okay, now we are going to do a transformation of the company. Now, again, like I told you, it was very, very painful to do that transformation. It took me four years and, uh, and our revenue uh, you know, growth that we used to be so proud of completely stagnated out. And in some cases, even then backwards as we were making system changes and people changes, that was um, you know, almost to some, uh, some places exactly opposite of what we initially started off doing. But uh, I can I can proudly report that uh, now in 2019, this is the best year ever that we have had, whether that's uh, organic and inorganic growth, whether that's client satisfaction level, whether that's the number of employees we have and the longevity of it, all of them are pointing at the right direction. Well, that is fantastic. And, and uh, with that, do you have any... Um Books. I mean, I know a lot of, uh, I hear a lot of staffing firms using like the traction entrepreneurial operating system. Are there books or systems that you've kind of uh, leveraged to help kind of grow and structure the business? Or has it been something that uh, you've kind of built organically as well? Yeah, so ours is all homegrown. Uh, we, we do have the systems and processes and everything in place. And <clears throat> for example, we, we uh, actually measure our, uh, you know, projects coming on or people going off on real time. Uh, so we have a lot of data analytics uh, tools that are, that are embedded in our system and, and we train them on it because, you know, a, a lot of companies are not used to it that, uh, you know, minute by minute, I, uh, we can figure out what's happening in the, in the organization. What we believe in is really drawing the boundaries of these are the basic rules of the company. But we know that, uh, you know, again, we have offices, what, 23 offices around U.S., but, you know, we have 600 people working in Brazil. We have 150 work, uh, working in Eastern Europe. We have 200 people working in the um, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, and, and Thailand region. We have 450 people in India. So, Different states, different countries operate differently. So if you have such a rigid rule that you, that nobody can deviate from it, you actually do all your managers a disservice. You really don't need managers and leaders at that point. So what we do is we define the rules, but we allow our managers to customize it based on what that local market demands. And that actually leads me perfectly into the next question I had for you, which was to talk about your core values. I, I saw you had accountability, respect, collaboration, fairness, ingenuity. Um, you know, how, how big of a uh, aspect do you think these, you, you know, defining your core values and implementing that in the business is this? Um, maybe you just talk a little bit about how how this has uh, impacted your business. No, absolutely. And, and look, I mean, everybody has core values and the core values mean nothing if you don't live it. 
uh, you know, I have three children and uh, what I have realized is that my children learned a lot more than watching what I do rather than uh, hearing what I say. So these values we practice on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, like the fairness core value that if we know that our client uh, is willing to pay more because they are, they're not understanding their requirements correctly, we would actually go and correct it. Uh, you know, again, even in the RPA example, they didn't know that there was a way that we could save them the money. They, you know, they didn't talk about it. Uh, but we, we wanted everything to be fair. So we, we made sure that we went in and we made the process improvements and we gave them the, the savings dollars back. Accountability is our biggest core value. Uh, I mean, we, we manage one monitor and uh, uh, all the metrics in real time and it's transparent. Everybody sees everybody else's numbers and what they're doing oh, and wow. what they've been able to achieve. Full transparency, 100%, right? So a lot, of, a lot of people get worried about that. It's like, well, what, how's this working out? But no, I mean, that's, that's what it is, accountability. If you don't like your numbers and that's why you want it hidden, go make your numbers better. And, and in respect, uh, one of the things, again, that we practice throughout is, look, respect generally goes upwards very well. You know, people, people kiss up to their superiors all the time. We make sure, <laughs> we make sure that starting for me, that if you're at a conference and, um, you know, some of the associates are helping clean up, that we get involved in cleaning up. That's showing respect, right? So we walk the talk to make sure that people are uh, understanding that that's what we believe. Now, is it perfect? The answer is no. Look, I mean, as the company has grown, I'll be the first one to tell you, when it was a $100 million company, I knew and uh, what was going on at any given time. And if somebody was breaking a core value, I could actually call them up and sit, da- sit down with them, explain to them why it's important. Now it happens, and I, I find out about it a month later. So it is getting a little harder to do as it's scaling. And I'm hoping that our managers would step up and again, live it because just saying it has no value. Living it is where, where it brings the value. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, I'm going to just jump back a little bit. I actually had one question. If, if, uh, you, you mentioned that you had acquired a few companies and you plan to acquire a few more. Um, what type of advice do you have for companies that are in a position where they're looking to scale through acquisition and they're looking at, you know, uh, how to identify uh, who to acquire and how to go through that process. What have you learned to learn through that process? Yeah. So the first thing that you have to understand is what is your strength, right? Is your strength uh, in cost containment? Is your strength in taking and scaling your product? What exactly is your strength? And then you need to find companies, uh, target companies that are going to benefit from that particular strength. And culture is very important. Different companies have different cultures. So, so what you, what, what, what my advice always is, is, is to be respectful of it. But, but there are two ways of doing it. One is, uh, that a big bang approach where you pull the bandaid off right off the bat and everybody is part of the same group. And the second one is that you leave the other group alone for, for a time period and then you do a slow merge together. Um, 
both both options work. I am actually more of pull the bandaid out uh, right now kind of a man. <laughs> so so when we bring yep. people in, we br- bring them into the dices fold right away. What we do pay attention to is their compensation. So if for some odd reason our comp plan is different than theirs, at least for six months we try to keep them whole because you know again people can't change their lifestyle drastically like that, yep. and you, you, we have to be cognizant of that. But that's the only thing that we keep whole. Uh, but day two after the merger has happened. We are now sending our Tiger team into our acquired company to educate them in how DICES systems work, what are our values, how do we operate, what are some of the things that you need to learn, what is the learning schedule going to be like. We're into assimilating them the next day. That's fantastic. And uh, it's, it's interesting to hear that approach. I've watched both and uh, I've, I've definitely... Uh, Seen plenty of companies not pay attention to the culture fit uh, and, and run into some major issues on that front. Um, so when it, when it comes to uh, I guess going through all of these acquisitions, all of the the, the steps that you've gone to get to where you are, um, what are some of the if you're open to sharing some of the you know the, the mistakes that you've come across that you wish you would have things you wish you would have known um, as you've grown to this point, uh, things that you could have avoided if. If you'd only had the right conversation with uh, somebody like yourself <laughs> at the, no, or, or listen to a podcast, hopefully like that day. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I, I have made plenty of mistakes, uh, but the fortunate part is, uh, you know, I, I generally try to recover from it quickly and I, I generally uh, try to never to repeat my mistakes. So I'll give you the biggest one that I had. So I told you that we were doing a transformation of, uh, of the company in 2012. So part of the transformation was let's get rid of our low margin business, right? Made sense perfectly. That's how yep. what we wanted to do. So we got a, a, a group of our low margin business, almost about $100 million. So, I mean, think about it. Our, our, our revenue at that time was $250 million. <laughs> Run rate wow. was about $300. Wow. <laughs> $100 million of that was low margin business, right? Let's take a third of it. Yep. Yeah. In my brilliant assessment, I went back to the clients and said, clients, we gave you a price break before. If you don't, if you, if you can't raise the rates by another 5%, we are not going to be able to service you. Now, the client said, thank you very much. You know, we are Fortune 500 companies. There are many people standing in line to get this business. So if you don't want it, we'll give it to somebody else. And that's exactly what they did. And that $100 million piece of business uh, dwindled to almost zero in about wow. 19 months time. Wow. Painful. Painful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and if I were if I could had a time machine I would go back and smack the silly me on the head and say, "Mafuz, if you don't want this business, carve it out and then put it up for sale. Somebody will buy it and at least it's uh, not going to be I a see. complete loss." I see. I see. So so basically, so, carve, I mean, carve still, it out as a separate, a separate entity almost, and, exactly. uh, and find a way to kind of spin it off, spin it off, but uh, no need to to sell. You know, just let the relationships pass. That, that's that's really good advice. Right, and I, and I got a goose egg for it. Right, uh, at least somebody would have paid me a few million dollars for a hundred million dollar business. Right, and, and so that was a really silly mistake. Uh, the other one I'll tell you is uh, we, we have, I'm in the obviously in the Washington D.C. metro area. And I have zero dollars worth of federal business. It's all commercial. 
it blows everybody's mind. Uh, and, and there's a reason behind it. When I started the company, I was a lot more idealistic than I am right now. So I decided that in the federal side, if you go in there, uh, you get business because you're an 8A. You're a minority-owned company, so people are going to give you business. And I had it in me that I will not take one piece of business because of the color of my skin. I will win business because I'm better than you. So as good as it sounds, it's a really dumb idea because by the time <laughs> I was big enough, now if I have to yeah. compete and get into federal market, I'm competing against a Lidos or... CSC or the likes thereof, where they have much better calls than I do. So for me to get into the federal space right now, I actually have to go buy somebody. I can't organically build it because it's not going to work. So, so idealistic behavior is good, but it needs to be thought through. <laughs> uh, that, that's, a, that's a great story. And I, uh, I a lot of respect for you on it and also uh, see, see both sides of that one. So, um, uh, so just a, a couple of questions to round it out. Uh, so, what do you what do you see as kind of the biggest challenges facing the industry? I know you mentioned yeah, consolidation, which I, I completely agree with. I, I think that uh, it is an unbelievably fragmented industry because of the low barriers to entry. But how, what are the uh, additional challenges you see happening within the industry that um, as, as things are moving forward? So I think the pricing pressure is going to be one. If you look at uh, Europe market, which is probably slightly bigger than U.S. in staff augmentation, their margins are probably three to four points lower than what we get in in U.S. So there's going to be some margin pressures coming in. The second thing is automation. Um, You know, it's coming. (laughs) Whether you like it or you hate it, Automation is coming and machine learning and it's here to stay as the technology is improving and it's improving really, really fast. If you look at some of even high level jobs like data analytics, uh, you can teach machines to do some of that stuff far better than human beings can. So if it's not creative, if it's really doing the grunt work, those things are going to get automated in the next three to five years. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what automation is doing. I've even, uh, I think it was in the book uh, Sapiens recently that I heard that uh, the creative side, I always think of that as being the, the, the protected side of, uh, 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 protected from automation. But then I learned that in chess, uh, when they uh, identify if somebody is cheating in a chess championship, they look for the more creative moves. And that ends up being the, the person who's using the uh, uh, autom- AI to win. Uh, is that the AI is actually more creative than humans in uh, chess moves. So uh, that, that's uh, <laughs> a little, almost a little scary on that front too, but um, definitely see that coming as well. Um, so, so what's, uh, finished off, what, what's next on the horizon for, for Dysis? Where, where are you guys going next? Where do you see yourself five years from now? So one of the things that we, uh, we do, uh, we suspended in the four years when we were trying to reorganize is that we take 10% of our gross profit and we uh, put it in innovation. So we bring in all our, our leaders. We sit down generally in December and we say, look, uh, what can we do? What is it the new uh, latest and greatest? What are you hearing from the field that we need to invest in? And then we invest in it. We give it a three-year time horizon to be self-sufficient. If it doesn't become self-sufficient, we kill it. So innovation is the, is the core of us. And uh, the reason I'm giving you a long-winded answer is besides automation, 
things just change really, really fast. We are going to scale up. We are only 420 million. My goal is in the next three years to get it over a billion dollars where we are of significant size, but then really get into the business of solving our client's problem in the most efficient manner. My observation, and, uh, and again, that bank uh, example that I gave, gave you for anti-money laundering, uh, the reason that we could not do more automation there is the manager there did not want us to do it. There's still this old school mindset in, in certain places where um, people feel important based on the number of individuals that are reporting to them rather than what is the system and what the system's impact is to the business that you're managing. So, so it's going to be a journey, but we want to be partners to those companies that really want to accelerate productivity, want to get it to the next level. Our, our job, as I see it, is partnering with our clients and things that they're not good at in, in getting it from point A to point B because of red tape or, or their internal issues, or, or that's not their core competency. We want to be their go-to partner. That's awesome. It sounds like you're really shifting towards the, you know, kind of outcome solution based focus on what's right for the, the, the business, regardless of, uh, the short term, but looking at the long term partnership. That's, uh, sounds like you've got the right model and clearly you've, uh, identified a, a model that's, that works well. Um, so it's, it's been really fantastic talking with you today, Mathus, and, and learning from you. Um, just as, are there any, um, other comments that you'd like to make before we, uh, close out our, our call here today? Uh, no, I think, that, David, you have captured everything well. The only other comment that I would make is our specialty is in uh, maintenance and upgrades. So we're not your building guys, right? So the, the example that I give that's non-IT related is when you need a house built, you call a builder, you call an architect a builder, hopefully you call a big one, they come and build it for you, and they have the warranty. And then after the warranty period is over, you can either get an extended warranty from your builder, which is going to cost you a lot more money, or you can find a good third party that come and maintain all the stuff. Now, there's a difference. You have your HVAC system and your plumbing system maintenance and your lawn maintenance. For your lawn maintenance, hire whoever the heck is giving you the cheapest price because even <laughs> if they mess yep. up your lawn, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that bad. But your HVAC yep. and your plumbing, you need to find guys who you can partner with that you know when you call them, they're going to come, they're going to do the job, they're going to do it right, they're going to give it at the right price, and it allows you to live in your house. We are those guys. And that's how we partner that, with our clients. That's fantastic, and uh, I think a, a great way to finish this conversation. At. And Mahfouz, again, really, really enjoyed talking with you, enjoyed the conversation, enjoyed learning, um, and just uh, happy, happy to have you on uh, Staffing Hub uh, podcast today. So we appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very kind, yeah. and it was a pleasure right. speaking to you as well. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. You have a good one. Thanks for listening to The Staffing Show. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at staffinghub.com to never miss an episode. Until next time.